Okay, so we are on page 12, and we are on Mark 14:34, the last verse we're going to look at in the book of Mark. And I'm wondering, Tara, if uh, you would read for us. Uh, let's see. I'm looking to see if we need to read more than just verse 34. Why don't you read 32 to 34? Okay. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, because we spent time on it in Matthew. But it's... It, it shows us the importance of this statement to the gospel writers that it's in more than one gospel. Uh, that Jesus actually states the condition under which he's dying. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And I, I always glided by that as hyperbole, as I think as a young person reading the Bible. I never really took it to the depths which I do now. But I don't think it's hyperbole. I think Jesus is describing his condition at that point. He is dying uh, from sorrow. And, and that tells us something about the nature of Jesus' death and the nature of the death of the wicked. All right. Let's move to Luke 1. Start at the other end now of Jesus' life. And we're going to find, you know, Mark has been a lot of repetition with Matthew. We're going to find a lot of differences now, I think, in, in what we deal with in Luke. So we're going to start with Luke 46 to 55. And for those of you who have this sheet, there's a typo. You should note verses 49 to 55, not 59 to 55. It's a little bit opposite. Taylor. This is Mary's song that she composes for the occasion of visiting Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you read the entire song? Sure. Starting at 46? At 46. Okay. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He ha- for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and ha- but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the, hu- the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich with any- away empty. He was... He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So, what did Jesus come to do, according to this? Hold the hungry with good things. Mm Mm-hmm. Did he scatter the proud? I think what she what she's meaning, she is odd. She is odd because God has chosen her 
to be the mother of the Messiah. She is odd. Because she considers herself really, who, who is she? She's nobody, uh, in a sense. And if, if God could uh, so regard the humble, that he, in, the, in the act of regarding the humble, he scattered the proud. The proud don't know what to do about this, you see, is, is her way of thinking. Uh, this, this song actually is just a little bit like Hannah's prayer. Uh, after she uh, is pregnant with Samuel. Gene, you mentioned it, I think, last week. Is that kind of a a new, shocking revelation for, like, Mary and them to to realize the Lord glorifies in and, and loves the humble? And when they grew up in society... Where the rich and successful were the blessed of God. Right. When all of a sudden they receive the blessing, it's just overwhelming on them. Is that yeah. the feeling? Yeah, again? that's the feeling. That's exactly the feeling. Yeah. The the rich, uh, the rich, the the powerful, the successful. In fact, if I could paint a picture, and, and I'm going to be doing this from memory, so my I don't know that I'll have my facts exactly straight. Um, but in Jesus' day. You had this tier of hierarchical relationships uh, that had to do with the economic scene. That was just formidable. Uh, most of the people who followed Jesus were the peasant population, who, who had nothing and were nobody. Uh, they were called by the Jews the Amha'arits, the people of the land. And uh, they were considered to be ignorant and mixed with uh, non-Jewish blood um, and, and because they couldn't trace their lineage back. And, and I don't know if this is true or not, uh, but I, I'm wondering if one of the reasons they couldn't trace their lineage back is because they didn't have the wealth to be able to hire someone to do it for them. So they were considered, they were considered not as worthy of salvation as the upper class. Which is, the upper class was probably about 6% of the population. 5% that were below the 1% that ruled the top. Uh, so if you wanted, for example, uh, three of Jesus' disciples are fishermen. Peter, James, and John. And, well, actually four. Andrew, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Their father probably was an actual fisher who hired other people to work for him, chiefly his sons. And the reason you had children in the ancient world is so that you had workers to work for you. And so his sons were part of his, his entourage of workers, and above him was a broker. And the broker snagged in most of the wealth. But he, he was the, the go-between him and, and those who did the trading and, and all of that thing, all that kind of thing. So, so that's the kind of mechanism you have going on. And, and the peasantry were just really the underdogs. They were downtrodden. They had no, no wealth and no opportunity to get above. I mean, it's not like America where uh, you get an education and you have a, a chance at least of uh, getting somewhere. Uh, although this is getting less and less viable in our society today because of the strength of the of the few wealthy on top who are billionaires. But anyway, 
the the class Jesus is dealing with and talking to are really cognizant of their position. And the other thing you need to know is that the word friend had a totally different connotation than we give it today. How would you define a friend? This woman here. <laughs> she points to a friend. What what makes her a friend? <laughs> um, at least with with our friendship, I think it has to do with the fact that we have a close bond and we've, we've known each other basically our entire lives, and it's something really, yeah. Same stuff as cool. school growing up, church, everything. Yeah. And we went wow. to we went to elementary cool. and high school together. That's really cool. Yeah. So are you roommates? And we're yeah. roommates. And, <laughs> and she works for me. She's my boss. <laughs> and we're friends. So, yeah. But um, I think that with our friendship and many other friendships, it's something that, you know, you spend time with this person. And maybe friends that you're not as close with it's very superficial or maybe it's something that's like oh we have this in common okay you're my friend now um and then sometimes you have friendships that are just more deeper and you have deeper conversations and you have more of a bond with that individual the end i suppose okay very good description of friendship in today's world now substitute the word for friend patron what comes to your mind what was the word patron Someone that like a lot of like loyalty and duty is due to like it's more of like a business relationship. That's the word. That's the meaning of the word friend. If like a client, or if uh, yes, everything in the business world of Jesus' day centered around client, client, and and patron, and the clients were of course the peasantry the people and and only probably a minority of the peasantry ever became clients but if your high up say your broker became your and and, and really it probably belonged and I, I need to go back and reread my notes for encountering Jesus before I really know I have these facts straight but um, in order it's probably the people like like the fishers who deal with the brokers, who can become clients of the broker. And what the broker does, if he decides to make you his, decides to be your friend, again, patron, he invites you to a feast. Remember how Jesus is always going to feasts? And you're going to see this in the Gospel of Luke in a very uh, clear way. I think Jesus is almost always in Luke going to a feast or coming from a feast. You invite uh, your client to a feast, uh, and you provide for him a garment, and the garment establishes your status before him. And uh, there you sit at the feast, and if that is not the end of the relationship, it isn't just, oh, great, he, he's, he wants to be my friend, and, and I'm, I've moved up in status. No, now, from now on, you're obligated to do whatever the, the patron wants you to do. So if he decides you should get a, come to him at 5 o'clock in the morning and do something for him, like run an errand, you have to do it, or you lose his patronage. So, so before you do any of your own work, 
you have to fulfill any of his needs. So you go to his house and you say, what do you want me to do for you today? And he hands you a list. And you have to do it before you do anything else. That's the society which Jesus lives. Well, that's a different view of friendship. Yeah. That must be in quite a few cultures. We watched a movie last um, weekend. It's my long wife's favorite. And uh, we're going to show it to Ed and Jeannie. There's uh, the City of Joy, and it's in, in, down in Calcutta, and a doctor that disenchanted American came over, and there's a Christian clinic he gets involved with. But the whole storyline is about family coming from the country into the city and the poverty and the enslavement. He becomes a rickshaw driver. Well, you actually have a symbol, and you're owned by that person, you are, you're dependent on them, and it's in strict roles and you know, devastating you know, stories about he's trying to break out of that and all just about lose his life over that but yeah that, I never thought about that that picture of the friend is very different yeah wow yeah um, when, when Jesus tells the disciples that and I no longer call you my servants but I call you my friends because a friend servants don't know what their master is doing but I have told you everything from the beginning. Jesus is recasting friendship. Oh, okay. So it's different than it's different servant. Than servant. servant. More yeah, yeah. That, that kind of friendship is, it's, it's a nice band-aid over something <laughs> that's very hurtful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a way of glossing it yeah. so that you don't feel the sting yeah. of what it's really costing you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Kim? I was just going to ask you, um, I understand what you're saying about the servitude in the general populace, but what about, where does that go with, like, Nathan, uh, Jonathan and David, that friendship? How did, where did that switch, and what is it? Well, you have a little different connotation of friendship in the ancient, in the ancient Near East. Okay. I'm talking Palestine, Jesus Day, under Roman governorship. Okay. So, so, so it's a little bit different. However, it's still contractual, isn't it? Mm. They have to form a covenant. Mm-hmm. They can't trust each other. No, it's once, once you enter politics into the relationship, now they have to have a covenant. I've, I've asked my students uh, in class, so how many of you have formed a covenant with your roommates? And they all look at me like, duh. <laughs> 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 and finally one student said, I'm, I never have because I trust her. You know, we trust each other. Yeah, that's what we understand to be friendship. Well, that might be a good thing for professors and students. Actually, there was a time when my early years of teaching here at PUC, when I made up a contract to deal, to deal with some problems with students, and uh, they were going to have to sign it. I never used it. <laughs> I outgrew the need. Uh, I learned how to handle certain situations. We, we do that with at-risk juvenile uh, students. The contracts are very common. <laughs> no, they're not always that useful. But, but, but imagine doing that with your best friend. Yeah. Someone who really loves you. Oh, we better set up a contract. It's almost as bad as having prenuptial agreements. Yes. Were, there, were there romantic relationships kind of the same way? Absolutely. They were all, and this goes all the way back this goes all the way back to probably post-flood times. Marriage 
was a means of gaining status and wealth for the two families. Uh, particularly for the, fa- the family that had the woman, the man had to pay the bride price. And that bride price was established by the father of the, of the woman. Uh, so uh, this was a very status-building uh, kind of arrangement. So you wanted, your, you wanted your daughter to marry into a wealthy family so you could peg that price. And, um, you know, she, she had, had little choice in the arrangement. I mean, I, depending on the family, I think. I think in some families she did, could say nay. It's kind of like Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, <laughs> but Fiddler on the Roof is a good example of what you're talking about. And it's all about money. It's all about worth and status. Uh, you remember the poor tailor uh, who has, has no, uh, no value until he, he finally has a son and now he has some value. Uh, they don't understand that getting a sewing machine is, puts him in a little higher caste and he can earn more money. Uh, it's, it's that whole thing. Is what happened when they went to the synagogue? Were, were these people of the land even allowed in the synagogue? Yes, in a synagogue, but not so much in the temple. They had to stay on the edges of the outer... I think the... I don't know if they could go into the inner court or not. I'd have to review notes on that. So that class system really was part of, like it is in the eastern, if you go farther east, it's very much part of their culture. Yeah. Well, this is really radical. For what Jesus was saying. Well, the whole Bible is this way. God, in the house of the Father, let's go to the second millennium and and first millennium B.C. In the house of the Father, the oldest son had preeminence over all his brothers. And that was like, it was more fixed than law. (laughs) I mean, you didn't defy that. You didn't go against that. And in the house of the father, the oldest brother would stay in the compound. In the second millennium, homes were compounds. And they were formed in pretty much a square, and you had rooms all the way around the square. And the servants lived there. They had the servants' quarters, which were probably much smaller than the others. Uh, And then all the kids had their quarters, uh, and so on. And when, you, when the sons would marry, they brought their wives to that compound. And not only were they the boss over their wives, but the mother, that is the mother-in-law of the women coming in, was their boss, their new boss. And, and they had to learn how to cook all over again because it wasn't like home. It was now like the family of their husband. Uh, and they had to please the mother-in-law. And so they virtually became slaves of the mother-in-law. And, and the husband owned them sexually. That's, that's the arrangement of the house of the father. You read Genesis 2.24, I think we're reviewing a bunch of stuff today, but uh, Genesis 2.24, Wherefore shall a man leave his father and his mother? Oops, what? Leave? No, you don't leave. And cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He goes to the woman, 
That's the ideal divine plan. It's not the house of the father. And so you, you then come to the Cain and Abel story. Who is preeminent? It's not Cain. It's Abel. What about Jacob and Esau? It's not Esau. It's Jacob. It's not Judah. It's Joseph. And, and you keep going through, and it seems that God always picks. Uh, Moses is the youngest in his family. Uh, David is, is not only the youngest in his family, he's probably an illegitimate child and isn't even brought in for the family feast. It's not considered family. You just go through. God is always picking the people that are the rejects, the marginalized, and the lowest on the totem pole. It's, it's all through the Bible. So picking Mary is very biblical. But somehow, because societal pressures are so strong, the people just are shocked. They don't, and, and of course, Mary, how much of the Bible did Mary know? She probably knew some of the Psalms. She might have heard some of the prophets and, and some of the Torah, because it was read in the synagogue on Sabbath morning. That's the extent of how much she knew scripture. And that was true of everybody. It was pretty much they didn't moral, have Bibles. Pretty much moral tradition for those people. Well, because they didn't, they have, didn't read. They didn't have Bibles and they yeah, they couldn't read. You know, they couldn't there were no bookstores in ancient times. Scrolls were only in the Yeah, because they're hard to make. How much do you think women actually knew about the Bible? Because it's not like they could get an education like men could to like... Actually, they could get an education. Oh, if their father decided to defy the rabbis, <laughs> they, could, they could teach their, their daughters. And, and there's, I mean, there's a tradition that Mary taught Jesus, and Jesus knew letters even though he never studied with the rabbis. I, that's, uh, that's the question. How did this man did, know I, letters having never learned, studied? Mm-hmm. He never, he never had formal know, education. How did Mary know how to do that? If her father taught her. Her father taught her. How much do you know about the Catholic beliefs about Mary? Because I know that they have a lot of beliefs about her regarding her birth and also her education. Like I know um, with Professor Winkle, he like when we went through the different... Um, apocryphal books it talks about her childhood and stuff do you know where they got those beliefs because it certainly doesn't seem to match up with the culture and with just <laughs> the story of the bible like you're talking about I think I think there's a I, yeah the new testament apocrypha is extremely embellished extremely <laughs> so where they got them is this this great insane drive to over magnify everything. Mm-hmm. The relic age, uh, where you you, pros- you have these artifacts that you worship practically, and um, making sure you have secured the gravesite and the and some other site, and, you know, all of that comes out of that tradition. Um, no, I think I think Mary is in a very humble status. And if she did, had learned letters, she probably had to keep that pretty mum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it could get her into trouble. But where would fishermen be on that ranking? Are they real low ranking? 
Well, the the ones that work for the fishers revert pretty low. Any 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 group, the farmers, uh, the fishers, the people that worked with the brokers were a pretty pretty good status uh, for low class. They're low class, but they're they're good low class. Uh, the ones that work for them got nothing. So here is this uh, woman who is. He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, she says. And behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. She knows she's going down in history because of who. And of course, from the very get-go, Mary has this vision of Jesus as the Messiah coming as a conquering king. And, and that, to every Israelite, means wealth and riches and supremacy. They're going to be brought up from their low estate as a nation. Keep in mind, Israel sees themselves as a very low caste nation under Roman dominance and control. And no matter how hard they try to wrest themselves from, from Roman grip, which during Jesus' time, lifetime, there's a tremendous amount of attempt, uh, false messiahs coming along, claiming to be the messiah and, and trying to break that iron grip of Rome. Um, particularly the closer Jesus gets to his mission. So, so she has this, this view in her mind, not knowing that the God who notices the humble and who works predominantly with the humble is a humble God, and he's not going to come that way. So notice that she calls him my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She calls him her Savior. Not my King, not the Almighty. She calls him her Savior. And this is not a favorite title in the Old Testament for God. So if we're, if we're looking at Luke in terms of salvation, it seems that almost on day one, Luke is establishing that God is the Savior. And of course, the question we keep asking is, what is he saving people from? So verse 53, Mary says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. It almost sounds like God is discriminating against the rich. And uh, people with wealth have been bothered by that ever since. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's amazing they caught that. You know, it's such a, that culture was so, you know, like Matthew in Matthew one twenty one, you say Jesus, he will save his people from their sins, you know. That the whole... Um, that was not their vision of yeah. the primary vision of Messiah, was it? No. 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 So that's the beginning of Luke. So let's go to Luke 2. And I don't think I remember your name. Jonathan. Jonathan. Jonathan, would you read verses 8 to 20? And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. 
An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in the manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has appeared, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. What is this message that the angels give the shepherds? You know, imagine shepherds, these, these shepherds who are watching the field by night are the lowest because the preferred shepherds would get to watch them by day and sleep at night. So these are the lowest. And they're on the same hills that David once watched his sheep. What is, their, what is the message to them? Imagine with all this light, they are terrified. I think anyone would be terrified. <clears throat> but especially people who are used to being dominated. And this seems this light is so intense and so bright that it, it must mean a, a tremendously superior being coming to dominate them. The other thing is, I remember in our Greek class, uh, in our beginning Greek, Professor Winkle talked, I, I forgot why we got into it, but we got into the topic of angels, and here it says, <clears throat> the heavenly host, and that makes us, when we say host, it makes us think of, of warriors, of armies. Right. Of, well, the, the Hebrew word lying behind uh -huh. that is armies. Mm -hmm. And so it's just... So many times when we picture the nativity scene, it's really beautiful and there's little baby angels with wings and little, you know. But these guys were some built strong, you know, even he talks about how in Revelation, the cherubs are actually a mixture of four different creatures, which is man and, you know. Right. So it's just, it's crazy to me how we, we try to dumb down the story of, of uh, nativity to be this... You know, really nice, really quiet, little relaxing. Yeah, but it was even though even though God came humble, even in His most humble state, He is powerful. Right. You know, so that's what that's what really gets to me. So there, there's fear there, um, but uh, you know the the angel isn't saying don't be afraid. He says stop being afraid. In the Greek, it's. 
It's not aorist, it's present, present tense, with a negative. So you're still in beginning Greek, right? Yeah, that's, that's intermediate level concept. It, there's two ways of saying don't, don't do something, and one is stop doing it. It's punctiliar, the aorist. The other is stop doing what you've already started doing, and that's more the present tense. But it's just funny because we, we were talking about how like these big, huge dudes come out and like you know again mixtures of of uh, animals and all these other things, and the angel just says, "Don't be afraid" or "Stop being afraid." You know, it's kind of like how 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 can you not when you see all these these things that you wouldn't regularly see that these people that are intimidating just by looking at them, you know? Stop being afraid. Look. Is that that continuous present tense that the Greek has that we don't have? Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it's a little bit like Hebrew, the Hebrew imperfect, which is, it's not really a tense, it's, it's ongoing action. Yeah. Uh, whereas the, the perfect is completed action. Um, so it's a little bit like the aorist, which is, is completed action. It's a punctiliar, we call it punctiliar. Like it's a dot on a line uh, in, in aorist form, whereas present tense is that's the line going forward. So uh, don't stop being afraid for, be, for look, I'm bringing you good news of great joy, which will be to all the people. Wish I could announce this to the whole world. But you're the, you guys are the only ones listening, so here we are. Ellen um, White talks about that particular thing, that the angels came to announce it and they could find nobody until they just looked back and found the shepherds. those shepherds. And that was it. Nobody else would, they wouldn't have announced it if they hadn't done that. See, see only the humble listen. Pride feels no need, so there we are. And especially the, only the humble will listen to someone who is humble. And, and I think, yes, God has great majesty and power, but that's not what he uses to control the universe. He operates on his moral nature. And, and the moral qualities of God don't appeal to the proud. So here we have this good news. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, not a king, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, who is Messiah. And we need to know that, you know, we take the word Christ for, for as a, just a loose title of Jesus and we don't pay attention to what it means. It is Messiah. And, and to the Jews who are watching and waiting for the Messiah, this is dramatic news. It's easy for us to glide over it and not realize that. What, what this reminds me of is kind of like that verse where Jesus says, you know, the doctor comes to heal the sick. And so it, it reminds me of this because how you said that, you know, he couldn't find anyone. The angels couldn't find anyone to proclaim this message to. And... It, it helps me realize that, you know, I need to be in my, like, when I'm in my worst, that's when God can work the most. And just like how these people were considered the lowest and considered, 
the trash, the garbage, mm-hmm. you know, that's when God really used them to say, hey, look, I'm going to come and say And they're that. the ones, I think the, the portrayal there is that they were, the angels were looking for someone who was even thinking about the Messiah to come. And the shepherds were talking about it. Because they needed it. So here, because they needed it. And because they were ready for it. You know, we're not ready for something we think we can control. And, and pride is about control. It's about being on top of the totem pole and, and controlling the people below us. So what we think we can control, we don't feel the need of as much. Uh, and this is a Messiah they're not going to be able to control. Humility or coming in that humbleness. I remember Josh McDowell he was sharing, he shared somewhere in one of his writings, I'd never forget this story, where Mother Teresa is speaking at Harvard. She says, now, boys and girls, you are, li- you are sinning. This is wrong. And she gets a standing ovation. Well, she has a level of authority because of her life and who she is that, you know, of respect. Mm-hmm. And, and that it isn't power, it's authority. You know, why can we see Jesus spoke with great authority? But you get that authority by coming down, it seems. Is that, my, is that making sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the authority built on humility is a very it different does. kind of authority yeah. than authority built on power. Yeah, it's a different, it's more, it's, it, and it's, it's much greater, you know, actually strength person who um, we, we give them great respect yeah. Yeah. so and this will be a sign to you you'll find the babe wrapped in, in claws uh, those claws were the traditional claws that you wrap a baby in when it's brought to be born uh, you wonder if Elizabeth handed over John the Baptist's claws to Mary because where would she get them She's not even married yet. She's only betrothed. So did, did she have with her John the Baptist claws? Uh, they always wrapped babies tightly in, in these bands when they were first born uh, to give them the sense of security and warmth so that they, wouldn't, they would have as, as easy a transition from the womb to reality uh, outside the womb. As possible. Uh, just a question. I heard one time a pastor preach a sermon where he said, and I want like you that know a little bit more about you know the the Jewish people and, and their customs of the time. They said that he said that swaddling clothes was something they actually used uh, for the dead when someone was to die, and so he used this in in saying that. That's true. They wrapped them in long claws, probably similar to an infant. Those long claws would be much too big for an infant. Well, he didn't say like in you know clothes that they would typically uh, yeah. are with person, but that the claws that they used for Jesus were you know. I'm I'm sense I'm, my understanding, and you know this is something to research out. But my understanding is that they also used them for infants, and they didn't use the same claws, of course, because the infants were so small. But they had they had these bands they wrapped. So from womb to tomb, as it says in Job, you had a similar 
kind of thing, and that I, I think that's more likely than than being wrapped in close to the dead because the close for the dead wouldn't would be overpowering for this little tiny infant. Mm-hmm. Um, you couldn't possibly wrap him in. You'd maybe. Well, you were just using that to compare it. Yeah, to yeah, it, you know, yeah. I know. And, and so the idea being that you have a symbolism of of Jesus' death, but Jesus came to do much more than to die. Mm-hmm. And and I I. One of the things I'm, I'm concerned about in Adventist teaching uh, about salvation and the atonement is that we, we emphasize that Jesus came to die as though that was the only thing important. We eclipse the importance of his life. And his life is just as salvific as his death. I have a question. Um, you, were, you briefly said, you know, that Mary and Joseph were not married at this time. So my question is, why did they go together if they're not a couple yet and they have no ties in that way? Because the angel has convinced him that this child is the Messiah and he's, he's going to be the guardian. Mm-hmm. And she is betrothed to him. Mm-hmm. And betrothal is much more than just an engagement. Okay. It's much more serious, much more binding okay. than an engagement. Uh, that's why in Matthew, when he decides to divorce her, the word divorce is used. You wouldn't use that of an engagement. You would just say they broke it off. But in a betrothal is divorce, because betrothal is the next thing to marriage. We don't have any evidence at a wedding. No, and, and there's no evidence that they were married at this point, because he, they waited to have any kind of relations, it says, until... So the betrothal party may have been all that Mary had because it, Joseph would be probably unwilling to let have a wedding with a, a mother and a baby mm-hmm. <laughs> and his society. And his culture. And his culture, yeah. Because you, you remember that throughout Jesus' life, he was, he was they cast in his teeth that, that he was an illegitimate child. So, so here's, here's this... From human perspective, the humblest of, of shepherds and the humblest of an infant being born, because look where he's born, he's lying in a feeding trough, in a barn. Now, to make this even worse, uh, Malcolm Maxwell went to Bethlehem and asked about the barn and the major. And he was taken to a cave where apparently in ancient times they kept animals. And apparently today they still keep animals. There's lots of caves in Palestine, just lots of them. Uh, They took him to a cave and he said the smell was just horrific. So imagine, imagine the coming Messiah in that state. Uh, from a modern perspective, all we can think about is all the microbes he was <laughs> faced with when he comes into the world. About the humblest position you can be in. Where would he be born? Where would he be put if they welcomed him as a king? He'd be in Jerusalem. He would have a gold-laid crib. And here he is in a feeding trough.
really confusing to the wise men. <laughs> you know, they were amazing people to be able to recognize him. Yeah, they didn't go home, man. I think that makes more sense almost because that shows the how genuine it is. Because if there were false messiahs, they would be the people wanting to do it for the power and the glory. If anyone had a child and they wanted to say, this is the Messiah, you would go to Jerusalem and say, look, we have the Messiah, because they want that kind of power. But being born and then being put into the place where the animals are and in just such a lowly position, it really shows they weren't doing this for anything else. Like, this was real. This is is where being a genuine person, having a genuine salvation experience begins. And you think about it. The real litmus test of what is godly is that salvation comes softly and gently. Not always. I know there are exceptions like Paul on Damascus Road. But normally salvation comes softly and gently and unobtrusively and so humbly that we can just easily walk by and not even notice it's there. And you think of how our world has worked very hard to drown the still small voice, the softness of God. Interesting, Jane. He, you know, you're emphasizing today. He took every opportunity to break that economic system, choosing the humble, choosing the humble place. (laughs) You just, I mean, that is a. Even today, it is such a powerful system to respect those of wealth or in position or, and, and devalue those of, you know, lower economic status. I mean, we, that's just part of sin. I, I, can't, I can't resist telling a story from my own life. When I was at graduate school, a student in a denominational institution that was very known for its wealth. And I was asked to serve on a board of people who were seeking to, to find ways to spread good news about God. And I served on that board for probably now seven months, I think. And I made a complaint to someone about I wishing there was more action and everything. And I was informed that if I really wanted to make a difference, I needed to have some money. And that money was the issue in terms of serving on the board. Serving on the board. And so, so I turned in my resignation. And, and the chair of the board said, no. He put it up on it. And, and he was one of, these, one of these more wealthy people who was very humble about it. You know? and, and he just he wouldn't accept my resignation. He threw it up on the shelf and said, I'm not going to accept it. I'm not even going to read it. And I can't, I, so I sent him another one. Something else happened, and I sent him another one. And he did the same thing with that one. And uh, finally, I got a call overseas. And of course, you know, I'm not going to serve on the board from overseas. So I sent him my third resignation. And this time, he had to accept it. And I remember him coming by my office where I was working, looking a little distressed. And he said, you know, they accepted your resignation without hardly any comment. And he said they chose immediately so-and-so, who was wealthy, very wealthy. And, uh, you know, I, I, it was a real lesson to me about wealth and its, its power. 
and, and we're going to see this in Luke. We've seen it in Matthew. That Jesus, his parables, his actions, all the way, are so anti-economical. Now, we, we just recently read about the, it's easier for a, for a rich, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go through the, to heaven. Of course, there is a gate in Jerusalem that's called the eye of the needle that camels had to take off all their loads and all their baggage in order to get through. Uh, and that's possibly what Jesus is talking about. But nonetheless, notice what they had to get rid of in order to get through the eye of a needle. Uh, so, so to me, and it's really, the bedrock isn't the money. It is the power that comes with it. Daniel 2 the Hebrews, or actually I think it's Aramaic, says that the rock is cut out without hands. And most versions say without human hands. They insert human, but it's not in the original. Hands is such a symbol of power in the ancient Near East that in the Hebrew, <coughs> one of the definitions of hand is power. The rock that is the kingdom of God is cut out without power. <laughs> and it's just a common rock. It's not gold, it's not silver, it's not brass, it's not iron. It's just a rock. Let's build on it. Separate. Father, we thank you that we have identified perhaps the core of your being the core of your governance, the core of who you are as humility. We thank you that you are the rock cut out without hands, a humble, self-denying God whose power is awesome, but it is built upon humility. We ask that we may build on your rock so that when the storms come, we are not moved. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.